Hey, I'm Ben Woolman. I'm Kate Steiner. This is What Do We Know? A new podcast from the Columbia Center for Science and Society. We'll be sharing stories about, well, science and society. Knowledge. Access. Technology. Space. Spaces. Pretty much anything and everything we're curious about. Finding connections. And questions. Across different fields, events, developments. Welcome back. This episode's going to be a little different. Featuring our first interview. But before that, we want to share some quick stories as table setters for the conversation. Just a few months ago, a team of researchers from across the globe released a tantalizing paper detailing the surprising observation of potential evidence for phosphine gas in the atmosphere of Venus, a typically manufactured chemical that also just so happens to be naturally produced by certain species of anaerobic bacteria, raising the question, could the first extraterrestrial life we discover be found not on Mars, but on Venus? But just one month following this initially exciting publication, a month saturated with Twitter discussions between scientists and alien enthusiasts alike, new studies revealed from archival observations as well as analyses of the same data as the original paper, no indication of phosphine gas at all. Hmm. While it's possible, it now seems likelier that the similar signature of sulfur dioxide is the true culprit. In 2014, a group of Caltech cosmologists believed they'd done it. With the Nobel Prize in sight, they were confident they were the ones who had finally observed evidence confirming one of the most dramatic and consequential theories of the origin of the universe, cosmic inflation. By teasing out swirling signals within what's called the cosmic microwave background, the remnant radiation of the first light directly following the Big Bang, the researchers believed they'd found the distinct billions of years old footprint in the sand of the gravitational waves that sculpted our early universe. Not wanting to be beaten to the finish line by another research group with unpublished data that could confirm or deny, highly unlikely, they internally determined. They accelerated, or skirted, some might say, the typical peer review process, announcing their findings at a press conference at Harvard to millions of viewers online and publishing their data and papers in advance themselves. Less than a year later, their inflationary bubble burst. Deflated by the data from their competing researchers, who revealed the true cause of the curious signal, dust in the Milky Way contaminated the result interstellar particles in the foreground that caused the same spiraling signature they'd initially believe, or hoped, to be the surefire sign of gravitational waves. Nobel, no more. We wanted to talk to someone who might have more to say on this topic. Yeah, so the phenomenon of of people pushing out results that may not stand up to the tests of time we welcome Caleb Scharf, Columbia professor and director of astrobiology. You know, it's not a new phenomenon. <laughs> if you go back to even Newton kind of fell prey to this, although he sort of got it all right uh, in as much as he wasn't so inclined to publish some of his work on things like 
calculus or what we now call calculus and, and gravitation. And it wasn't really until others encouraged him and pointed out that people like Leibniz were probably going to beat him to it. <laughs> he decided to, to actually publish the Principia. It's an important part of science to put out results that you feel are interesting, that you have some confidence in, but may be preliminary, because that helps drive the field forward. Enter the internet and social media. I do think what has changed a bit in recent years is recognition that you can get a lot of publicity for this. And scientists who are in academic environments Publicity is a way to get your home institution to support you more. It's a way to perhaps get external funding because people have heard your name and heard about your work. Ego is, of course, involved too. I mean, we shouldn't, shouldn't ignore that. We're all human. And if I put out some new result, the mechanisms by which that result gets picked up and very quickly disseminated are clearly different than they were even 10 years ago. I'm constantly astonished on social media. You know, you'll see stuff on Twitter before you're even aware that this work has been done. Scientific work, for example. And it's either because people will post ahead of some press embargo and say, oh, I, I, you know, so-and-so told me this. I better throw it out there because I want more followers on Twitter. So it's a self-feeding thing. So there's definitely a tradition anyway in science and a good tradition of, you know, we've got some interesting results. We're pretty confident in our work. Let's put it out there. This is part of the scientific process. You then let it be tested by your fellow scientists and, and so on. It's the pace at which that happens that has changed so dramatically. And also, you know, I think the added noise. So the pace is good. You can put something out. Maybe it's potential microbes in a Martian meteorite, or it's polarization measurements of a microbe background, or phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus, you can, you can get much quicker feedback from the scientific community, partly because most of them are on social media, but now also journals make use of their online access and ability to disseminate the work. And you kind of want that, and that's good. But what happens as well is you get this extraordinary noise of both informed and uninformed responses. And it's really difficult because if you're an informed scientist and you happen to be on Twitter, for example, and you see someone claiming something about phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus, and you read the, the scientific article and you think, oh, well, wait a minute, you know, I have these questions. It's tempting to put those questions out there right away from a position of authority. The problem is online not everyone knows you're in a position of authority and what you put will then turn into you know, repeats from other people and there'll be people joining in who, who may not have any expertise. One of those conversations are great, right? Isn't it? Not, it's like, you know, you want to go to the pub and have a great conversation where not everyone necessarily knows what they're talking about, but it's still fun. <laughs> but it has become a bit of sort of courtroom by which science is judged, at least in its early stages. The immediate potential for criticism and dissemination of that criticism, whether informed or not, is a really interesting and really new aspect of science and how it's communicated both internally and to the public. Generally, I know you have a Twitter account. Do you think that social media's uh, accelerating integration with science communication is a positive development or does it kind of block the typical publishing deliberative process? 
I, I feel I'm on the fence a bit. You know, on the one hand, I think the open access it creates and for people who may have nothing to do with science but are intrigued by it, for them to see part of the process in action in that way is terrific. As scientists, I think, feel that openness is an important thing. We like it when people who are not scientists keep up with the work, are appreciative of it because we feel it's, it is a contribution in some way to the the general well-being of society that people are informed, even if it's about something very esoteric. But yeah, the downside is, and I think this is where I'm a little less clear, is that I feel as scientists, we like to think we're able to control our world. We're, we're above the, the algorithms that run social media, but we're not. We're falling prey to exactly the same algorithmic traps that are set in social media for reason of wanting revenue. You know, Twitter wants revenue, Facebook wants revenue, and they get that through eyeballs and clicks and advertising. Those algorithms are enormously seductive and powerful. And I wonder whether some part of science getting trapped in those same algorithms is a good thing or not. And I'm not sure it is because it can subvert the underlying arc of scientific research. Caleb adds another story to the mix. To think back a few years, this is now at least eight years ago, it was a very controversial paper published about life that seemingly incorporated arsenic into its genetic code. These were microbes living in a hypersaline environment. The study that made some claims that were big claims, like rather than just using phosphorus as a key biological element, these organisms had figured out a way or had evolved to incorporate arsenic, which is similar chemically to phosphorus, but typically not good for an organism. We don't do well if we eat arsenic. So the fact that some life might have incorporated arsenic was exciting for astrobiology because it suggested the possibility of alternate biochemistries. Now, that paper, that's a bold statement to make. And very quickly when that came out, and this is now eight to nine years ago, social media became sort of the forum for discussing that result. And there were some quite vocal microbiologists who got in there as critics And, you know, I think they did a good job, but it was strange because there were pressures on them to sort of perform for the unseen audience. And there were pressures on the original researchers to sort of perform for the unseen audience. So on the one hand, science was playing out in a public forum. You know, it was like watching a boxing match or something horrendous like that. Horrendous, but fascinating. It created immense pressure on certainly the original researchers to respond to these criticisms without much time. In the more traditional setting, there would be criticisms, but it would be spread over, you know, months. It might be at a conference, it'd be a conversation or a talk, and they'd have time to go back to the laboratory and do some more work and so on. It could be a more considered response. And in that case, and I think it's good prototype for things that have happened since then, they were kind of put on the spot immediately. And what was really nasty about it was that in the end, it turned out that what they were claiming wasn't accurate, but it came a criticism of them as people, and in particular, the principal investigator. And I think that was quite damaging to their career in a way that it probably wouldn't have been without all this extra fuel added to the fire. So it's a curious, curious thing. It sort of thrusts you into a public forum that most of us as scientists are not used to dealing with. It amplifies the speed, amps up the cycle of 
responding to criticisms, doing more work to tackle these criticisms, you know, doing more quantitative study, it sort of ramps that up to a point where you wonder whether you can actually do a good job or not. Yeah, that kind of touches on a concept I was thinking about earlier in the connection with science on social media and Twitter is the idea of connecting. It's like this popular science that gets talked about on social media, like the phosphine. And a lot of people heard about that. They were saying like, oh, another aspect of how crazy 2020 is. And then immediately there was pushback against that and they had to come back with the paper. So I this connection maybe with cancel culture almost. Like you're saying the speed of this response and the criticisms that people get and they have to feel like they have to respond quickly and defend themselves. And then when they do more research and they realize that their initial statement was incorrect, then they get this huge pushback and it affects their careers really negatively. We see cancel culture usually used for celebrities where a celebrity who's very well known will do something incorrect or do something wrong, but then the pushback is just immense and it's hard to get back from. So do you think that's kind of like a way to describe the situation in science on social media, almost like a cancer culture kind of phenomena? Yeah, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I think there are some elements of this cancel culture pushback that people have experienced as scientists when their results go out into the world and social media catches hold of them. And that's not really helpful in the long run. That isn't how we think science should happen. Even if you're a terrible scientist right, and make outrageous claims, the scientific process, the scientific community has evolved ways of dealing with that that are not so immediate. There might be immediate criticism, but then that is typically followed with more work being done, more analysis and so on. Yeah, and cancel culture, it, it's like a tsunami coming at the person who's the target. Now, you know, I think in science, it's seldom that a scientist says something that is truly appalling for the rest of society. I mean, they can, certainly, but, you know, if it's a question of some piece of minutiae about cosmology or, or life on another planet, you know, that is not something that should be offensive to anyone. But they're finding themselves on the receiving end of that kind of cancel culture pushback. And certainly if one reads comments on social media that are peripheral to comments actually trying to interrogate the science or the arguments, you know, it's dreadful. It's the same stuff, you know, the same trolls, but also the same people who just feel they, they're going to say something to put someone else down that just comes in a deluge, which isn't good. And it, I could say, I think it, it does reflect something problematic in elements of society today in general we're dealing with everything in the world, climate change to social changes to politics and so on. And again, it, it, some of it does come down to the underlying algorithms. I mean, I'm thinking like a scientist. I think about life as an algorithmic process anyway. And now we have these additional layers of algorithms governing our behavior and you know, the ways in which we respond to sensory input. And some of those algorithms are built into social media. You know, it's not like those people are geniuses doing it. I mean, they may be clever, but they're not necessarily setting out to create these world-altering algorithms. They're simply trying to get you to use their platform and so on. That's a very strange shift in human cognitive behavior. And 
it's not clear to me that for science that's good at all. I mean, it's certainly not good for lots of other things, as we see with you know the division in in politics in certainly in the U.S. and elsewhere. Oh, I always thought it was very antithetical in terms of science and cancel culture to quickly respond to a piece of work very negatively against the scientists. When I was growing up, the biggest message of science and research was you're going to fail most of the time, but you learn from your mistakes and then you do better in your next research. You learn more from that and that informs your research in the future. Same thing with cancel culture being like if someone makes a mistake, I think it's more beneficial to inform that person or educate the community rather than just put them down and slam them for it. That was also why I made that connection was like, it just seemed so antithetical to put someone down for one paper that wasn't necessarily correct, because that seems like the whole message of science is to be wrong most of the time. No, absolutely. Yeah, science is all about being wrong and dealing with that in a, in a civilized way. The extraordinary thing is, and I've found myself having this reaction when I see something come up on social media or, or in on the news in general about a piece of science where I, I feel I have some insight and my reaction, whether or not I've looked at the work in detail, is that I'm critical. I almost feel not an obligation, but essentially I'll be left out of the conversation if I don't chip in somehow. As a scientist, not just as another person, but as a scientist, I feel that scientists love to gossip. Scientists love to stand around over coffee or beer and dissect other people's work and, and so on. And this is sort of an extension of that. And sitting here in front of my keyboard, if I don't do anything, some part of me feels like oh, I'm missing out. I'm not participating. I'm not getting my two cents in. But the danger is it's so easy in a fraction of a minute to type a few words without really thinking about their bias or their implications and just send it off and feel like, oh, I've done my bit. Now I feel good. I've, you know, I've, I've added my important opinion to that conversation. And of course, we all think, as certainly as academics, we all think our opinion is the most important opinion. But usually that's kind of damped down by the fact that we're physically isolated from each other. <laughs> and, and with social media, that barrier has dropped. So our instincts to sort of speak up almost feel guilty if you don't say something. But then or, or equally, one can feel totally guilty having just said something and realizing, hmm, maybe I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have put myself into that conversation. It's not actually helpful. Yeah, no, it, it, it is fascinating. And it's such a self-propagating thing because you end up not just commenting on the original research, but then you end up commenting on someone else's comment to the original research. And it's this exponential flood of people. And then you'll see people arguing amongst themselves over some original comment that was a thousand comments earlier. And I don't know if any of that is helping any of us. I'm wondering if you've got any experience with increased collaboration with this new technological format, because science is sometimes perceived to be a very private endeavor. And I think there are definitely benefits to scientists having Twitter accounts and even if not communicating their research, just communicating what it's like to be a scientist. Personally, I've had some very positive outcomes of being on social media, being on something like Twitter. One of those is maintaining a degree of connection with colleagues 
who are also there. Doesn't sound like much, but liking what someone has said or someone will say, oh, I just published a new paper. Here's the link to it. Responding to that does help maintain a degree of community cohesion that you don't quite get with just emailing each other every so often. You know, scientists these days tend to be widely dispersed around the globe. Even if you work together, you're not necessarily in the same institution. So it definitely is nice in that regard. And I definitely feel that I'm more informed about research that's going on when other scientists post something not controversial, you know, the things that aren't going to catch people's attention, you know, the pieces of work that are not going to suddenly create a storm of comment, but just important, interesting, steady work. Here's a new paper. Here's 10 tweets about what this is about. It's a nice little summary. In that regard, it's very, very useful. And I think it does something helpful for the field. When it doesn't trigger a mass response, it's this nice extra way of communicating. It's sort of a gentle touch with your fellow scientists wherever they are. I've definitely benefited from that. I've seen people post something about some paper that they've just produced or something they've read somewhere. And I'll go and look at it and I'll get an idea for something that I want to work on because of that. And it's very efficient. And it's easier in a way than you know, reminding myself to go and read the journals every week or to touch base with people. So yeah, so there is something helpful. You know, there's a tool there that is is useful. Now, it might be better if it was a sort of science-only Twitter. <laughs> Some people have thought about creating such a thing, but we're less inclined to be constantly looking at that, I think. If I really need to get work done, I will shut down all of my social media stuff. Because I find that if I pause for a thought, my fingers will skid across my mouse and lo and behold, I'm on the screen with my web browser and I'm reading the news again, because I only read it 10 minutes ago when I had another pause for thought. You're able to make these soft connections with people who work in different countries across the globe or in different institutions. By being online, this is kind of a back and forth. At the same time as like a scientist on Twitter, you are more open to the general public as someone who is able to speak on science and introduce new cool things in science or put your own two cents into it. But in the same way, do you also see more engagement from non-scientists or younger people? And what is the change, do you think, in diversity in people who are interacting with science? Can you see that through social media? I think I see that happening through social. I mean, I think I see the voice of more people who are interested in science and not necessarily a scientist. I think I see more voices from a more diverse population of scientists who find that social media is a way for them to talk about their experience and for them to show other people, hey, you can come from all variety of backgrounds and end up as a scientist. You can be a man, a woman, you can be transgender, you can have different ethnic backgrounds, you have different cultural heritage and still be a scientist and be out there. I definitely see that as having happened to a degree that it wouldn't have without this kind of outlet. There are many good things about this. My impression is that social media for science has changed people's perception of what scientists look like. We're not all balding, middle-aged white guys like me. <laughs> It is a much broader community and showing that to the world is, of course, incredibly important because it means other people will think, oh, so actually I could be part of that club, right? It's not just these sorts of people. That is definitely going on. The downside is that, as we know, people who put themselves out there as representing a facet of science that perhaps beyond what people have imagined science 
to look like find themselves on the receiving end of hate mail and pushback from the idiots out there. But at the same time, yeah, they have this opportunity to show themselves to the world, which is super important. We hope this discussion helps us all better understand the often precarious but potentially progressive and productive relationship between science and media of all kinds. Throughout all of this, it's such a double-edged sword, it seems. While social media is clearly incredibly potent, traditional media has, over the certainly the last 10 to 20 years, paid much more attention to science. It may not always seem that way, but it really has. The amount of science reporting, good and bad, has increased tremendously in traditional media. The sort of sense that there are newsworthy items because of the world we live in, that people should be more informed, people will want to know about some advance in biology or some advance in astronomy. So that has been going on as well. It's just that social media comes along and sort of amplifies all of that, turns the dial up past 11, <laughs> whereas the dial was already sort of hovering towards 10, I think, because of traditional media seeing a need for more science coverage partly because of drawing an audience, but also just this is the world we live in, right? Of technology and science and discoveries that impact everyone's lives. This podcast is sponsored by Columbia University's Center for Science and Society. Follow our Twitter at WhatDoWeKnowPod for updates and more information on each episode.